Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Aaron Shelley. Aaron has a BS in Mechanical Engineering and an MBA. He has worked with small businesses and startups where he developed a unique systems perspective on business and family. His work in the academic and business worlds led him to understand how related our families and business dynamics are. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Alex. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it should. So you wrote about a lot of interesting things. I saw that you have this concept called the family flywheel. Can you describe that? Yeah. So, I mean, I come from an engineering and business background, so I like to understand fundamentals and then I like to build those up. There's a book called uh, Good to Great that was out there. It talks about this flywheel effect. And then I was in mechanical engineering, so we have a flywheel. And that, that effect, in my view, is as you add momentum to something, then it and then it's spinning, it actually gets more stable and it actually maintains its momentum. So if you look in the family sense, if you build a, a family flywheel, what you're doing is building up positive energy and positive attributes, resources, and those things are going to help push your family forward and keep them on the same track. Does that make sense? It does, though. I want to now sharpen the pencil and try to understand every single concept. What does forward mean in the family context? What does push mean, et cetera? Yeah, well, so I, I use the concept of, of of the business world and I pull them into family because I think most of us are familiar with business and we get all this training in there. And yet, I don't know, besides my own family, I got zero training in <laughs> how to be a dad, how to be a, a spouse. You know, you just kind of hope you picked it up from your parents. So I look at the business world and I'm like, well, <clears throat> what is the strategy of a business of Google, right? They have a specific strategy. Then they have a structure that they use to execute that. And then they have a culture that reinforces and is aligned with that. And so if we look at our, our families, what is our strategy? What are you trying to do in your family? What is your purpose, you and your spouse, if you're married, what does that look like together? And then what are your structures that are, that you guys are using to execute on that? What roles, you know, often in a business, I'm marketing your sales works out great right? But if you're marketing and I'm marketing, then we have a lot of conflict. Or if we don't have someone in product building it and someone selling it, then we won't make money. So it's really looking at the family at a high level. What are you actually trying to accomplish? And then trying to execute on that. So it's not me defining what your goals should be. It's you saying, just like in a business, we do annual planning. What is your plan for the next year? Right? And yet you look in a business, you look in our families, what is your plan for the next year? I don't know, keep survive. Well, <laughs> if you have no, if you have no goals, it's really hard to know if you're achieving those. And I think that's where, frankly, a lot of men struggle is they get into the family and we haven't put into effect. What are our financial goals as a couple? What are our social resource goals as a couple? Like what relationships are we trying to build and maintain? And then, you know, what abilities and time and our health, how are we trying to build those things up as well? If we don't have goals for those areas, how do we know if we're achieving? And I think this is where you see a lot of men where they're like, I don't know, the family, my business is going well, or my job's going well, but my family's in shambles. I don't know what to do. I guess one thing that immediately comes to mind is in our business, it's pretty easy to figure out what metrics we want to track, what the goal is. It seems like, at least in my experience, the family is more process driven. So the goal might be something like be less stressed while doing roughly what we're doing, right? How do you quantify that? Or how do you even define those goals if they are defined in terms of process or feeling as opposed to something you can measure as an outcome? 
Well, I, I think there there's a problem. If your goal is just to be less stressed, well, I don't have any goals in my business like that, right? I So I would say, well, what, be less stressed about what? Finances? Does that mean you're overspending? Does that mean you don't have enough money in the bank? Or you have too much, you're spending too much? Like, what does that actually mean in, in the long term, right? So that's where it's like, well, do you want to be more present in your relationships? Okay, how would we measure that? So it's kind of thinking through it. We have the same problem in business, right? Where we're, if you're a startup founder, you're like, well, what do I want? I want to make money. Okay, but how? I need to do marketing. Like there, it actually is this very generative process. It's not this, I think once you get a business going, it becomes more clear. But when you're when you're in the founder, I, I just took a company, I was hired about four years ago with this company. We had 20 people. And over those four years, we went from 20 people to 180 people. And our goals changed a ton. Our direction changed. We went from kind of a lifestyle company to a high growth company. So I think it's a lot of, are we really trying to figure out what our family, where we want to go with our family? There's something I'm trying to hit, but I'm not quite hitting it with my question, right? If we have a business meeting in my company and mm -hmm. we start shouting at each other, but at the end, there's a good decision, good outcome, and it works out. I don't view the shouting itself as a problem. It was a part of the process that led to a good outcome, right? Mm -hmm. But if this happens in the context of a family, it seems like minimizing the shouting is itself a goal, right? The process is a lot more important than it is in, in a company. In a company, whatever process led to a good result is good process. Mm -hmm. In a family, it seems like you can hit all the metrics, get to all the results and get divorced at the end because now you hate each other, right? <laughs> or... To put it less, or I guess more in business terms, retention is more binary. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there is this thing where in a, in a business, people will be like, well, I can fire them. And you say like, you can do the same thing if you're in a, you have a founder, you know, oh, we're, we're founded this business. You suck. I'm divorced. I'm out. Right. So you do the same thing in family. We just, I don't think we have clear metrics on what we're trying to achieve. And I think there is some process questions. That's what I would part, put in part of your culture and a little bit of your structure what is okay, right? I, I've had arguments with my wife, we've had fights, but I'm not saying you're stupid and you're dumb, which is the same thing in business. I haven't had very many successful businesses where I say, yeah, you're just an idiot, Alex, and that's the problem. I'm like, no, I disagree with your implementation here. I think this would be more effective. So we're arguing not about, you know, we're not attacking each other. We're arguing about getting to the best solution because we're both on this you know, we both, if we're looking at the business, it's more clear what we're trying to achieve. Well, we both want to make more money. We want to position the company well, right? Especially if we have stock options or ownership, then we're like, we want the long-term result for this company. And that's the same thing in the in the family. Like if you said, well, what, what relationships do you want in the family? You know, like, because you see it where doctors will, you know, oh, I'm making so much money. I'm going to work extra hours. And then they disconnect from the relationships with their wife and kids, and then they end up with divorce. So you're, you're right. Retention wasn't very negative. And then you destroyed a lot of wealth. So that's to me is kind of looking at it and saying, what, how would you look at your family in the next year and say, this is, or next five years, this is what was important. And we achieved it because that's where I think it's very vague in some ways where we're not defining, well, do I want to take, I mean, you said you had some younger kids. What type of experiences do you want to have for, with them? What type of relationship do you want to have with them? What type of relationship do you want with your wife? And if you define those things out, then you can say, well, I want to have a close relationship with my wife. Most of the research is saying you need at least 90 minutes per week 
with your spouse, just talking through the logistics of the family. And then if you look at what's important to her, okay, how do I nurture this relationship and vice versa? So that's the stuff that we need to look at is like, what does success look like in a family? And I, you know, is it good relationships? Is it you've, you've made a lot of money? Cause there are periods, you know, when people will go get an MBA or advanced degrees and it's like, <laughs> I kind of have to sacrifice a little bit of the family, minimize the time there, but then we'll have more money. So this is, we're both in this boat and we're both kind of making it happen. And if you do that together, it can actually bring you closer. But if you do it apart where you're like, I just have to do this. This is what I want to do. And your wife's like, well, this isn't what I want to do. That's when you end up with a lot of issues when you're not going towards the same end goal. Does that make sense? It does. In your experience, are men and women typically equally receptive to this kind of approach where you say, let's just map things out and follow a process and make sure everything is logical and structured and follows towards a goal? Um, I think if you, I've had I've had, I haven't had a lot of problem when I've talked with my wife, maybe she's different. She's actually, she's a music dance theater major and I'm an engineering major. So we're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. And to me, if I say like, here's the process, I want to do it. Then she goes, I don't like that. But if I'm like, well, here's what I want for my kids. And like, like, I'll give you an example. At one point I talked with a friend of mine and I said, and he, he talked about skiing. And I said, snow skiing is so expensive. It costs so much money. It's so much time. Why would I do that? And he's like, well, I do it with my kids and my wife. And here's why. We have all the time up and up and down the slopes. We have and up and down on the lifts. We have all the time going to and from the area. We eat afterwards. We have, I have all this time to spend with my kids in, in getting involved and talking with them. Not to mention my kids learn that they can fail. You know, like skiing, you will fall down. <laughs> So I have this opportunity, they fail, they fall, they get better, they develop skills. And we kind of, that's part of our culture is you need to fail. You need to try hard things and then fail. So he said, that's why I like it. Well, I took that information. I was like, that's awesome. I took that to my wife. And I think, I said, I think we need to spend some of our financial resources, our money and do skiing because it will build on our social connection. And after I explained it to her, then she was like, oh, I'm totally on board with this. Even though she was 40 and hadn't really skied and I hadn't been a heavy skier, but she looked, she realized the value for the family. So I think if we're just saying like, well, I want $50,000 in the bank or hundred thousand, or I want to do this, why? But I think as soon as you pull the emotion into it, then I think it's very easy for my, the women and your spouse to get involved. If you're saying, here's the relationships. I want my two kids to support each other, to love each other. How are we going to do that? They've got to have shared experiences. What shared experiences are we going to build? Similar to how you talked about your, you and your brother negotiating for time and working through those things. It's like, how do you go through those logistics and think through, well, what would we need to do to achieve it? Money to me is the easier question. I know that puts a lot of stress on many families, right? But to me, that actually is the simpler thing to negotiate because when at least my wife and I talk about money, there is no emotion in it. It's pretty easy to quantify which way is up, right? Mm -hmm. But there are things where it's not so clear cut. Time is perhaps one of them. So at some point, I actually did the engineer thing and I mapped out how much time we spend in a week on different types of activities. And one of the things that jumped out as an anomaly to me is we spend at least six times as much time with kids as we do with each other without kids. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that seems like we're prioritizing one particular thing at the expense of another thing. Is this the right ratio? I looked at my wife and she looked at me like I'm an alien speaking about 
some other planet. Like, why do you plan this thing? Does this seem like project management to you? It's children, right? <laughs> Are these concepts translatable between these contexts? Or is it that when you hit an emotional context, like a mother wanting to spend time with kids and do what's best for them, this entire approach falls apart? Well, there's a there was a book called His Need. There's a book called His Needs, Her Needs, where it kind of maps through what are your needs, what are her needs. And if she says the things that I need help with and I, you know, that are important to me are like my husband spending time with the kids, right? Then in some ways you're fulfilling her needs by spending time with the kids. But if, if that's not one of her needs, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be there. So I think it's a lot around trying to figure out what their needs are. And you're saying, I mean, like if you looked at the relationship and you said, hey, our relationship, I don't feel like it's as close as I would like it. Or you ask your wife, well, how is this relationship in terms of your fulfillment for you? Then she goes, well, it's fulfilling right now. And you say, well, it's fulfilling for me. Well, then we don't have a problem and the ratio is probably on. But if you said, you know, it's just not working for me. I don't feel like I have enough time with my wife any with you. How can I get, how can I get more of that? Then I think it becomes, I think women will are much more responsive if you're saying, here's how I feel about this situation, because I don't know that there's a correct ratio, you know, like, oh, it's a six to one with kids to wife. That's bad. You know, you want to keep it to a five or it needs to go to a seven. Like there's no, that's kind of why I wrote the book. It's more on the principles of how to think about things, not the implementation, because just like a business, all families, you can have successful families with very different business models. I agree with all the principles. Naturally, that's how I think as well. It seems, though, that at least in my experience, women tend to look at this as a complete loss of romance. You're taking away the magic. You're trying to quantify stuff. What are we going to do next? You know, put our chores on Asana <laughs> or communicate via Slack. <laughs> um, I, I already had this issue a few times where... I keep using my calendar to actually organize things. So I tell my wife, like, if you want to make sure I'm going to be somewhere, don't ask me the day before, do you remember that so-and-so has a birthday? Just put it on my calendar. And even that, I'm I'm noticing some resistance in that it's a birthday, it's not a calendar thing, right? Whereas for me, well, a birthday is a perfect calendar thing because time is the same. It's fungible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely... I usually, that's kind of where the structure goes. I don't know how you and your wife do it. There's some of the, if you look in the business world that we have these meetings, you know, like we'll have an annual planning, we'll have a quarterly planning, we'll have weekly meetings just to keep everyone on the same page. And, and what you'll find as your kids get older is now you start to have their calendars involved and now you're coordinating four calendars instead of just the two. And so that to me is around well, what type of meetings do you have with your wife just to coordinate schedules? Because I have a weekly meeting with my wife and my kids where we just say, okay, what's on the calendar today? Great, let's let's mark it all off. I can put it into my system how I want it. She writes it down on her paper system, which still annoys me because she has a Google account. She can do it, right? <laughs> but but she still does it with hand. And I'm like, that's fine because now we've got our calendars you know, synced and I can do it my way and she can do it hers. But that's the stuff where it's, do you have those systems where you can deal with a lot of the re, the recurring things in your relationship? Does that make sense? Like you need some structure because that's definitely how successful businesses work. And that's how I've seen successful families work too, especially as you get more complex. It certainly makes sense to me because my own personal non-business things end up in this business-like structure too, right? But I'm just thinking whether it's transferable to everybody or... 
you're an engineer, you're talking to an engineer. So it makes sense to me. Everybody else is listening to us and looking at us like we're Spock. Well, well, you can see, I mean, I, I agree. And I've seen that where people are like, well, you can't do it that way. Well, okay. How are you going to coordinate that? Is it just going to be ad hoc? Because if it's just ad hoc and then the next day, oh, you need to go to your son's birthday. And you're like, well, freak, I didn't even know. Okay. And then you're letting people down. So I don't, for me personally, I don't know how I can be dependable <laughs> unless I can plan for things and shuffle. I mean, I have cases now where I have children with cars, right? And they're like, oh, my wife took a car and my kid took a car. Now I have no car. If I don't plan that, I end up in a bad spot where I can't go do consulting and some of the other things I need. So you have to find a way to do that. Otherwise, I think you end up letting each other down, right? I mean, this is kind of the needs thing. I was like, if you need, if your wife needs you to be there for those birthdays and you're saying, I can get there, I just need it on my calendar. Well, somehow it needs to get there. Either you put it on or she puts it on. But if that's how, I mean, I manage my life through my calendar as well. And it's, well, you, yeah, how else are you going to do it? Now you can't, you have to have some level of flexibility at times, right? Kids get sick, those type of things. But you've got to figure out structurally, how are you going to manage this logistical problem? Just like anything that you do in the business world, like, okay, you want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. How do we get it on the same page? Right. So you mentioned an interesting thing, which is your kids are older. And so I'm assuming now they've become a part of the planning session in some sense, right? Because their schedule factors into things. They also need to put things in the calendar or, I don't know, before, let's say they have a car, but when they can already drive, they need to tell you when they need to take the car out somewhere, mm -hmm. right? I'm assuming in the normal or in a typical family that happens ad hoc, but in your family, it's more planned. So how does that work? Well, like I say, we just have, we have a, a, a 30 minute meeting on Sundays and then we just say, okay, let's everyone look at your calendars. And my kids are saying, what are my tests? What do we have? What birthdays? And we kind of look forward, what holidays? I mean, you just start to look through, like you let people down from what I've seen and you actually lose trust and you're not dependable if you do not have some way of scheduling your life because things will slip through the cracks and you'll be like oh it was my anniversary <laughs> oh dang you know it was my wife's birthday dang i should have remembered but i was so busy at work so that's the problem that i see unless you have a system to manage that you let people down and then you'll actually damage their relationship so that's where i've seen it with with kids you got like you have to find a solution and i do think most families should have at least a 30 minute coordination session session. I've heard, I mean, I've, I've started with my wife, just a one-on-one -on -one 30 minutes, 30 to 30 minutes to an hour where we just talk about, okay, how was the week? Like, what am I grateful for you for has a very simple structure, but it just, it gets you a positive, Hey, are there any logistical issues we got to work through that you're unhappy with? Are there any like big problems that you're unhappy with? And then, Hey, let's plan for the future. Let's plan on what are we doing on vacation? What are we doing to stay connected? So I think there's some very basic structural things and you can go through a lot of books like, uh, like men are from Mars, you know, women for Venus, his needs, her needs. There's a lot of stuff on relationships, which is like, are you fulfilled? And is your wife fulfilled? And I mean, I don't know like how that works for you, but I plan all my, I plan the vacations and do the structure. And my wife's like, I don't know why you're so stressed. Well, because I'm, I'm dealing with all the logistics and you can relax. So yeah, our general approach to vacations is she says what she wants and I just have to make it happen. So I am entirely the implementer and not the designer or the planner on those, which is a fair division of labor, I would say, right? 
but it's interesting. So you mentioned uh, that book. I think I read it a very long time ago. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. The one thing I remember from that book is when women complain, they want to be heard and men want to fix stuff. And that causes about half of the fights that men and women have. But that describes a situation that is entirely ad hoc. You can't plan a complaining session for next week. If somebody's mood is negative right now, then it needs to happen now. How do you address that? Do you manage to plan it out or? No, no. I think my experience, and I don't know what yours has been with your wife, but my experience is that a lot of times when we have bigger explosions, bigger fights, arguments and stuff, it's not one thing. It's a series of like three or four that she's built up. And so part of what I'm I'm doing and trying to do with the weekly meeting is, is there anything that started to build up, right? It's not to the point of explosion yet, but you've kind of started to get annoyed with it, right? That's the level that it's, you know, I mean, this is mean time between failure, if you're familiar with that term, right? <laughs> I mean, you want to do mean time between maintenance. How often can I maintain my relationship versus now I have a failure and now I'm trying to fix this explosion. So that's really the point of this, the weekly thing. It's like, how can we keep on the same page and feel close to each other? And are we getting each other, our needs met? Do we have any underlying issues? So you're trying to de deal with those so you don't have a failure. So you're just kind of helping maintain it. Because a lot of times the failures are the high stresses on the relationship where you end up with bigger fights, bigger problems, and bigger emotional issues. Whereas if you can take care of a lot of the littler ones, they don't have that same magnitude. But I still do have the failure events. Don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no way to prevent everything. It's just you have fewer if you have a regular system to deal with the smaller stuff. Most businesses fail. So I think <laughs> as, as far as stats go, I, I'm not even sure that business outperforms marriage in terms of failure rates. <laughs> that said, you can make an argument that business has constant growth obligations, which marriage doesn't have. So maybe that causes some of the failure. Well, I think that's where you get into that, what I call the human resources. I mean, I'd be surprised if you're not a heavy learner, right? You love to learn new things. I call it the technologist. Like, we just love to learn and implement. And that's kind of the way we, that's how we make money in society. That's also just how our brains function. So that's, that's, that is a concern when you have, and your culture, like I have to be learning. I want to be pushing. I want to be growing. I want to be developing new skills. If you marry someone who's like, I don't care. I just want to watch Netflix all day. You know, like, then you, then you can have a pretty significant cultural alignment problem. But if you, so I think there is a growth need in the, in, in each of us and our kids are growing and they're, you know, what we want for them is going to change and grow. And then as soon as you get into older, like my kids, I have a married daughter now at some point I'm going to have grandkids. Right. So then you start to end up with, there is a growth nature in families. I think more, <laughs> I think, all, I think all biological people are all humans and all biological beings actually want to propagate. So <laughs> I think there's an obligation to grow on the biological side as well. Yeah, and there's also a tendency to grow just in terms of waist circumference. So, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's one of the things that I like. To, if you look through and say, like, it, that, I, I like to look at the goals in terms of what are my financial goals? To your point, those are easy. And then look at it and say, now, what are my social resource goals? What are my relationship goals? Right. Like with my wife, with other people, with my children, with other groups that I'm involved. Maybe it's a religious group or a sports group. Right. What, are, what does success look like for me there? And then also from a human perspective, what are my abilities? What new abilities do I want? What do I want my health to look like? My argument is 
I don't know if you're familiar with Rich Dad Poor Dad. Have you, you know, that, that one? So that was the first time I really saw the flywheel effect, right? You buy assets, you get income, get money, you know, get cash flow, get more assets. You know, this is a flywheel on the financial side. But you can do the same thing with your social resources. You know, you get good friends and you contribute to them. Well, they're going to introduce you to more good friends. And then you're going to get pulled into different businesses and they're going to push your learning, which will develop more human resources. So you have this flywheel effect holistically, not just in financial resources, but in financial, social, and human resources. So if you take your, your goals and look at them in those three categories, then you're saying, what are my health goals? And if I'm going to, because you don't want to just do finance and you're like, oh, I'm super rich and I'm sick and I'm lonely because I have no friends. Well, that's not the wealth I want to build. I want to be have money. I want to have a good group of friends and social connections. And I want to be physically healthy and I want to keep being, you know, learning new skills and abilities. Right. So there's several things that I want to touch upon here. Let's go from last to first. The social aspect is interesting because my observation among many of my friends is that men specifically tend to let themselves go in a marriage. And I think the stats bear that out, that men are very lonely in the U.S. and in the Western world specifically. And I see that, that most of the people that I hang out with today are the husbands of my wife's friends, right? All of my friends are in different countries because I've moved around a lot. So mm -hmm. it seems like my entire social sphere became the marriage social sphere, whereas my wife is perfectly fine and doing really well socially because women are just better at it. So... <laughs> Well, I would I would make the argument that most men, our social sphere used to be the work, right? We used to, when we didn't move around, a lot of, especially a long time ago, it was more tribal, right? We worked in small communities. We, we would build up these friendships when we were young, and then we would use, we'd stay in that condition for our whole lives. And now when it's moving around from company to company, and then from city to city, all those social relationships are continuously being lost for men. And I think it's a dangerous thing because I think we'll be like, oh, I'm going to make more money by moving to this new city. Yeah, but you're losing this other resource called social resources. That's why I like to have it there. And every company has this, right? Every If you look at Nike, it has its brand, right? That's its social connection. And it has that. And you wouldn't say like, screw the brand. We're just going to screw it up. No, that's the big important part of the company. And so I think we need to look at our families and be like, well, what connections am I giving up? By moving from this location to this location. If you have, you know, no friends or bad friends and your kids aren't connected, great. It's a good thing to move. But if you're well integrated into the community and you have a, you're of a good company, there's all these interesting people around you that you want to work with. By moving, you may be losing more value than you're gaining from the financial resources that you're gaining. I'm still curious when you talk about social goals for the family. Does that typically entail friends of the entire family or does it make sense to then separate and say, well, we need some social circle that involves both family members, right? But then some social circles that are separate to each one and you have to pursue all three. Otherwise, there's a disbalance. I, I do think it's important, like you say, to pursue those those connections together. Like there's some that you if you can find another couple that you get along with and your wife gets along with great it's very rare when you're like dude he's awesome and she's like she's great usually you're like he's awesome and she's like i hate her you know <laughs> or, or vice versa a lot of it is 
when you move to a new area, if you looked at it and said, we have just depleted our social resources, we need to rebuild, we need to invest in those. Then you would say, yeah, I want to, I need to invest in my job, but I also need to invest for social connections. And the example I'll give is when I was in college, my wife and I got married, you know, and I used to, <laughs> I used to live with five guys in an apartment. She had three girls in her apartment. You know, she would come home and download and I would go, you know, play video games and kill each other on those, you know, with the guys. Well, as soon as we got married, all those single guys didn't care. <laughs> they were like, you're, you're married now. And all her friends were like, you're married. We want to go do all the single activities. So we essentially, just by getting married, we lost a lot of our social circles in, in college. Well, over the next year, my wife and I decided we were going to invite like 100 couples in our religious group over to our house, you know, like a few a week and just okay, we have an hour activity, we do it. And then we'll be like, yeah, I'll never talk to that person again. Right. But that's what I say investing. It's like, you have to go and physically look at the time and say, I'm going to spend my time investing in other people so that I can have build up those relationships. You know, they might be like, oh, you know this, hey, you want to start this business with me or start the side hustle or, you know, do pickleball or whatever activity it is you do. And then you finally, you'll get that group. And then you're like, great, now I have this group here and I've invested. Now I can lower my investment level there and put it somewhere else. But if you move to a new location, what I've seen often, and you don't invest in social connections, a lot of times, either the woman or the man, quite often the woman will be like, I have no friends here. My family was in the other place. Now I have kids and it's stressful. And I, I got to, you know, like I'm not having a good time. You'll see mental health issues pop up. Right. So that to me is when you say investing for social resources, that is investing your time and looking at how can I gain friends and how do I expand my social group? All right. Now changing topics completely. I want Great. to go back to something that you said at the very beginning. And I don't remember the exact words you used, but essentially it was the economic concept of specialization. Right. In a company, you don't want everybody to be doing marketing and everybody to be doing engineering. Mm -hmm. We do much better when we specialize. It seems to make sense in a family context as well, but there's a lot of social pressure against it. Right? It seems that women are pressured to do what used to be the man's role in addition to their own and maybe even to the detriment of their own traditional role. Mm -hmm. Men are pressured to do the women's part in many ways. And so since we're not about to switch, we're basically merging and both becoming two mothers, two fathers, two everything. How do you pursue the benefits of specialization without kind of tripping on this mind? Yeah, well, so my wife and I have an Irish dance business and she's had it for 20, we've had it for 25 years. She teaches, I take care of the marketing and all the hard works, you know, the physical labor parts of it. And so it's not that my work, my wife hasn't worked. It's more when it comes down to certain activities, she says she wants to do the laundry. She wanted to, she wants to, she cares about the meals a lot. So she generally cooks the meals. She generally takes care of the laundry. But then when we have things like St. Patrick's day in March, when it gets really busy, then she's like, I can't do it. Well, that's when I'll jump in. I think it's very similar. Like if you're in a small business and you're a founder, yeah, you're in marketing and I'm going to take over product. But then if you have a problem, I'll come help you if that's the most important thing for the business. And if I have a problem, you'll come help me. So it's having some level of fluidity in there. But I think it's really silly to say, well, we got to merge everything like you were saying across. Why would you do that? Like you never do that in a business, but now women are like, well, I have to have my business. 
I've seen so many men and women who they're trying to run two separate, like two separate businesses, two separate careers. And you're like, what is the point? You have enough money with one career or you only need half of it. What is your point? Well, I need to have mine. He needs to have hers. Well, what? Why would you do that? Like if you want to get a revenue stream, and I've seen a lot of women and men who actually are, are poor financially because instead of them saying, you're going to focus on money and I'm going to focus on home, we both need to focus on home and we both need to focus on money. And then you end up with, it's just everyone doing it poorly and everyone being stressed. And so like, there's a friend of mine who he's a contractor and his wife's running a, a different business, like a catering business. And I'm like, he could make so much more money if she stopped her business and just supported his and then said, I'll take care of all the home stuff. When you come home, it's going to be relaxing. And then I'll help you with your business. He could probably make two or three times what she makes in her business. And so that's the thing where it's like specialization. We see this and there is this social pressure to do it, but I don't see that it makes any sense. That's my argument is why would you do it if it makes no sense? If you're just like, well, social pressure is saying I have to have a career. Well, are you going to follow social pressure? Like what, no, like what business would do that? Well, in our business, they say we have to have, you know, we have to have a sales team, but we don't need one. Well, we got to get one anyway. Like do what makes sense. Don't do what social pressure is telling you to do. I guess it's in some sense, I would say it's easier for us guys, right? Because the social pressure on women has been much heavier in the past 40, 50 years or so, where if a woman is in the social setting and somebody asks her, what do you do? If she, if her answer doesn't sound like an impressive career choice, right? If she says, well, I'm working part-time because you know I want to spend more time with the family, other women will make fun of her, right? It, it will be pretty painful for her. Well, it it can be, but my my experience has been, I've seen, there's a, a number of women I've seen that have done that. And then they look at their kids and they go, well, now my kids are screwed up. They're on drugs. They're doing all these problems. They're in therapy. And you go, was it worth it? Like, and then they're spending, you know, 30 and $40,000 trying to go through programs. And you're like, well, was it worth having screwed up kids so that you could have some women who you probably don't really care about tell you that you're good enough for them? Or is it more like, what life do you want? I mean, I think a lot of people have assumed my wife, since she's run this, since we've run the Irish dance business for 25 years, that she wanted to do this. It's like her career goal and her dream. And my wife will always say, this is secondary. If my family was ever at risk, I would shut this down immediately. Right. And that is the prioritization that you, I think is useful because you look at it and go, what are you doing all this stuff for? Well, I'm, she needs to have this. Is that because she needs fulfillment? And part of this, I also think is a, a lack of understanding of the family. I think women they are saying, well, you're not investing for financial returns, right? You're not getting money back. But if you look at it in the family setting, you're, she's doing the community stuff. She's investing in the kids. She's investing in the society, in the community. And one example I give on this is Bill Gates' mother, which I don't know if you've ever heard her story, right? Bill Gates' dad was a lawyer, but his mother, she was a school teacher. And then she got married. They had three kids and then she stopped working. And then once her kids got older, she started to invest in the community, in social connections. And she was on the board of University of Washington. And then she was on the board of United Way. Well, turns out Bill Gates, when he was with IBM, he was connected 
through his mom because his mom was on the board of United Way with the CEO of IBM. And so you look at this and go, if his mom had been like, no, you got to go be a boss, babe, get your kids out of the house and go back and work. Okay, she's making $30,000, $40,000 a year, and they could have missed out on $100 billion for the family. So this is the scenario where I say, you can have women who will, and men, let's not get it, like men and women will both be like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm just a mom. No, if and, it, and it, frankly, if you're just like, if all the woman is doing is very limited to just, well, I just wake up and I don't do anything else. But if she's like, no, I take my kids into social settings. I teach them social skills. Then I train them in different activities. I cook with them. And then I go and do community service. Then you look at this and you're like, oh, you're investing. It's like marketing and sales for a company. You're the marketing and sales for the family. That's important. All right. So now let me ask a follow-up question that might definitely get both of us canceled. Um, <laughs> does no-fault divorce play into it? That now the pressure on women is to provide for themselves in case something happens. They have to have a career because in lieu of a husband, if something happens, they want to go back to work and not start in the beginning of the ladder, but already be at the top. Yeah, I think, I mean, we're, there's a no-fault divorce. You see the same thing in companies, right? If we started and we're like, well, we're only kind of halfway in, you know, like, hey, Alex, let's start a company together, but I'm going to keep working my day job and you'll keep working your day job because we don't really trust each other. And then you look down, like the odds of that company succeeding are almost zero because at some point one of us is going to get busy, which then means the other will be over investing, which means we'll end up with some problems and we'll break up. So to me, it's like, why are you looking at this, this divorce thing? If you start out and you're like, well, in case my husband sucks and cheats on me, well, why is he going to cheat? And that comes back to a lot of the, the, his needs, her needs and staying connected. If your relationship sucks, then yeah, the reality is that one or both of you will probably go try to get those needs met elsewhere. But if you're investing in the relationship, and that's been my experience, I love my wife because of the differences she brings to the table. And she loves me because she's like, I hate technology. I'm like, I love technology. She's like, and I'm like, and I'm like, but I don't want to teach dance. And she's like, neither do I, but she does it anyway, right? No, she actually loves the dance sometimes. And so, so to me, it's a lot around, yeah, if you get, to, if it's just around divorce and you're like, I can't trust this other person. I mean, imagine going into a business like, ah, I don't know if I can trust Alex. Whew. He might screw me over. He might screw me over. Well, at some point, that's just going to eat into the relationship. You have to have trust. I mean, that is the opposite extreme, though. Uh, I guess I'm thinking, okay, maybe you trust the person 90%, but there's always a chance something goes wrong, right? Um, so if I compare a situation where there is no no-fault divorce, like pre-1950s, then family comes together. That's it. There's no way out unless something really crazy happens. And so... A woman can, in a sense, relax a little bit and say, okay, maybe I'm letting my career go. Maybe I am pausing at this stage. And if I have to go back to work in 20 years, then I'll have to restart from scratch, right? But what's the chance that's going to happen anyway? It's pretty small, right? Whereas in today's world, a woman looks at the same situations. She says, well, my family is great. I love my husband, but there's a 30% chance of divorce anyway, it seems like, right? And so in the in the case that that happens, where am I restarting? Or should I maintain my career so that if that happens, 
I'm restarting as a boss woman, to use your language, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it was difficult. So my daughter, my 22-year-old daughter, she's a nurse, right? And so when I was doing some planning with her, I kind of had the same thing. Like, you want to have a plan A, and then you want a plan B, just in case. And so when we were talking about what career she should go in, everyone was like, she should be a doctor. She's got so much. She loves the skill. She could go do it. She's great. And I said, yes, but how does that fit with your life goals? Do you want to have a family? Do you want to have kids? If so, when? Because I talked with my brother-in-law, who's a doctor. He says, all the women who become doctors, you know, it takes until they're usually around 30, 31. And then what do they learn? Oh, you're getting older. Your eggs are getting older. Your ability to do this well and have healthy kids is getting older. So he's like, they all work. And then they jump off and go part-time and then try to have a family. And so to me, I was like, well, if she, if she went into nursing, then she could go to a nurse anesthesiologist and make really good money. There's a lot of different options she could jump into. But if she decided to get married anywhere or stop working and go and just raise the kids, then she wouldn't be in this horrible spot of, well, I have all this debt and I can't make it work. So I think it's important to have a plan B. But if you're so focused on plan B that you don't invest in plan A, then you're really just planning to fail. Yeah, and, and you made an excellent point earlier that in in the case of plan A, it could be that one person doing less of something actually maximizes the resources at the end, right? All right, so now let's shift gears a little bit and talk more about kids, right? So in the context of a family, I guess those are the somewhat junior employees <laughs> who need yes. a lot of supervision. Very, very junior, yes. <laughs> who need a lot of lenience and uh, a lot of forgiveness because they're going to mess things up. They have to, otherwise they don't learn. Mm -hmm. So what are some patterns, some approaches that you've seen or that you've used that make sense, especially if you have some tricks that most people don't use, but would be useful to know? Um, well, I'd say that a lot of what I've seen is just playing with your kids, especially as a dad. I didn't realize this. There's a book called The Boy Crisis where Colin Farrell and or, oh, yeah, William Farrell. Yeah. He, so he they outline these 50 ways that boys benefit from having a father and daughters have benefit from having a father. There's also a lot of things. It's about 50 or so that they've been proven on on having a mother, too. So what they've shown, though, is that when men play with their kids, they're usually playing with their kids on the edge of, of their knowledge, of their ability. And so, and I talk about in the book, it's like having a challenger. Usually a, the, the husband is kind of a challenger and helping the kids grow and push their abilities. And sometimes they get hurt and then they'll run to their mom, who's the nurturer, and they'll get patted on the head and then they'll run back to the dad and play more. So it's a very important piece of playing with your children. And they talked about, 15 point lower IQ from um, if you don't have a dad in the home. And that's, so that's a place where for me as a dad, I was like, I need to play with my kids. And I think there's a natural way that a lot of men play with them, which is pushing them, you know, physically, emotionally, you know, and mentally, they talked about how you usually sing nursery rhymes and sing them a little bit different. If you're a, if you're a guy, cause then the kids are kind of always getting tricked and like, Oh, there's all these dad games that are happening. And so I think it's very important just to understand the massive impact you can have on your children. And then, so from, then from, from my opinion, that's one of those things when I realized that and with my wife's business as well, then she would go teach. And now I had all this time to play with the kids. And so then I would play with them. And that's where you really build up the relationship and trust because you're helping them learn and grow. 
And I mean, I don't, <laughs> you seem to mention when you were younger, these great times with your brother and <laughs> trying to negotiate, you're right. And then you have your dad there and I'd be interested to know what your experience with your dad were, because usually you're trying to, they're trying to push you and teach you whether it's chess, you know, how are you playing? Are you, are you playing to kill him? Like, Oh, you're an idiot. Are you like, okay, you shouldn't have moved here. You, you just got pickled. I took your queen. No, no, no. Let's back up. Now let's help you think through it. So those are the things that I think are really important, but most men don't realize how important they are. Yeah, in our case, it was much more analytical than that. In fact, we played very little. We usually analyzed my past games to figure out what I did wrong and what I need to do better next time. Right, that was the majority of it. Especially once I became better than him, then we definitely never played again. <laughs> we just started analyzing. But yeah, I could say that one of the effects is, for example, I never got upset after a loss. I don't think ever in my life because very early on I learned that a loss is just this thing that I need to analyze and learn from. That's the mm -hmm. point of it. And in fact, when I had the choice to enter one of two tournaments, depending like if I was at the edge of qualifying to the upper one, I always went for the better tournament, even though that means I'm not going to get any prize money, but I'm going to learn much more by losing to those better guys than I would if I just beat a bunch of weaklings and made money. Well, and this is, that's where you see, like, where did you learn that from, right? That mentality, that culture, your dad, it seems like passed on to you, right? And you're like, I would rather learn than make money. That's a value system. And that's a belief. And that's, that's a prioritization. And that's where I think it's so important when you do that. I mean, I'll tell you my experience. I played, I played some chess and my dad taught me early on. But then people started labeling me. Oh, you're smart because you won that game. Oh, you're dumb because you lost that. And then I started to hate chess because it meant every time I won, I was I just maintained that I was smart. But anytime I beat anyone or lost, then I'm dumb or they're dumb. And so I was just like, this isn't fun. This is and it's and that's this is the book. If you're familiar with uh, Mindset from Carol Dweck, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing where it's like, don't label your children because <clears throat> it has pretty large consequences on them. Yeah, well, th there's different types of labeling. I would say that growing up in a Jewish family, the kind of labeling that we have works in the other direction. So the typical Jewish way to motivate your kids to be excellent is to tell them, oh, you're such a smart boy. Why did you only get 99? Can't you get 100? Right? <laughs> so, so that's the normal thing where it's you're always the super smartest one and these are the high expectations for you. And now you just mm -hmm. have to live up to them. Um, it worked wonders on me. I don't know if that's generally applicable, but I, it seems like, at least in my case, I never had this connection between an outcome and my own confidence, right? Mm -hmm. I failed, but that means I did something wrong. It doesn't mean I'm stupid, right? I succeeded. Well, it means I did something right. It doesn't mean that I'm smart. The smart part is kind of an expectation that was already set ahead of time. Now I just have to live up to it. Uh, so mm -hmm. I don't know if that's generally applicable or not, but... I certainly find it weird when I see people immediately translate outcomes or actions into self-assessment. Like, mm -hmm. Why would you? There's so much variance in the world. Yeah, well, I think it's, again, it's a bad belief system. And and some of that, like I, I still will play chess, but I just didn't go through this. I mean, I was, I may have been better than my brother, but he played on the chess team and did all this stuff. But I was just like, I don't like the labeling. But my, even my, my dad had a thing where he would say, there's no mistakes, just learning opportunities. And I applied that in every other area. But for some reason, chess, <laughs> I, I love watching it and it's fun to play sometimes now. But it was just such a negative piece at that time because 
there's just times when you're playing chess and you don't pay attention to something and you're like, oh man, I just got screwed. <laughs> like I lost my focus for one minute. I missed the one move that I should have and I'm dead. So there's a, you know, there's... It is a mistake. Just one that you need to learn from, right? Mm-hmm. But, but mistakes definitely happen. The benefit of chess is that if you make a mistake in boxing, you get punched in the face. Right? <laughs> chess doesn't typically have that issue though i have seen some fights break out but (laughs) yeah well and that's and that's really that's what i think it's important for you as a parent to figure out and pull your children into stuff that you enjoy doing a lot of times parents will be like i need to find what my kids like and then i gotta i'm gonna go involve myself in that activity and i agree with that to some extent but i think it's more important when you're a parent like i like to play chess i'm gonna try to get my kids into that I like to play games like this. I like to do these activities. And then the kids get involved with stuff you like, and then it's so much more enjoyable for you to spend time with them. I mean, I play volleyball and I've got all my kids into volleyball and I have groups that I play with. And it's like, I'm bringing my, I don't know what she was, 13 year old daughter. And it's a whole bunch of men cranking on and and hitting really hard. Sometimes my kids got hit in the face, but they're like, I'm like, this is the way like, yep, get up, try again. And so it's like, how do you build the mentality and how do you get common interests that you can spend with your kids? I don't think it's wise to go off and be like, well, whatever my kids want to do. It's like, they're your kids. They're probably going to have similar interests. So find things that are common and then you'll really enjoy doing them. Are you familiar with the Folger family? All right. So that's a famous chess story uh, that dates back to the 1960s originally, where there was a professor who was studying child development and he had all these wonderful theories about how to raise geniuses, but everybody made fun of him because he didn't have kids. And so how can he have all these theories on child rearing? So he posted an ad in a newspaper somewhere that says, I'm looking for a woman for an experiment. A woman replied to the ad, she was from Ukraine. Uh, She moved to Hungary where he lived and they had three daughters together. And he was looking for something that was as quantifiable as possible so he can get constant feedback on how well the method is working. He picked chess, even though he's never played chess in his entire life. He learned chess, and then while he was learning, he was teaching his daughters using this constant feedback, constant reinforcement system. Long story short, his daughters are the three best chess players in history. Right. Uh, Judith Bulger, the, yeah, the younger one, she's pretty much the best one. She was, I think, at the peak number four in the world among men. And wow. the, I think the only one who got there, maybe now there's one more that's uh, about as high. And then the older one was the world champion among women. Uh, the middle one, she was probably the, I'm not going to say the least talented. She just had uh, less work ethic than the others. So she was a grandmaster, but didn't get into the top of the top, right? Just a grandmaster. Uh, Just a grandmaster. (laughs) Um, Oddly enough, I played on the same team with her for a couple of games briefly when I was in college. (laughs) Um, But that is to say, sometimes it makes sense for a father to learn an activity just because he thinks that's a good activity for the kids. Yeah, no, I I agree with that too. It's like, I, I did skiing. I did a little bit of skiing when I was younger. And then when I was like, I think it's a good activity for my kids. I spent the next four years, we had season passes and really devoted myself to it, even though I broke my collarbone at one, one year. So, all right. So so that's where I do think, I do think it's important just to have activities that you like to share with your kids and do pull your kids into activities as much as you can, because 
kids are young and they're stupid. They don't know what's fun. They don't know what's interesting. And so they can get sucked into social media crap or they can get sucked into very cool things that you're doing. All right. So really quick note on that, because that actually relates in part to the work I do. How do you protect your kids from the kind of stuff older peers are doing, but we all know you shouldn't do much, especially when you're young? Yeah. How do you protect? I think it's a lot around what are you doing in your family? If you don't spend any time with your kids, why would they think like you? Why would they look at situations? You know, how can you shield your kids from stuff that you're not, if you're not there on a regular basis? So first off, it's like, if your relationship with your kids isn't stronger than their relationship with their friends, I think you've got a problem there, right? And so then it becomes, it's a little bit tricky. You look at social media, it's known not to be good for kids. But as my kids got older, I'm like, you're going to have to learn how to use it. And so my daughter, who is a nurse, I was like, what are you looking at? And how do you use it correctly? And I don't want you to get involved in the wrong stuff. And she did get at points in, involved in some stuff where it was, you know, like body issues and whatnot. And then I'm like, this is crap. You don't want this. And then I could help her work through it. And then she started because she loves medical. Then she just ended up following all these people on rare, rare medical diseases and all this stuff. So then I'd look at her Instagram and I'm like, oh, this is disgusting. I don't want to look at this. But she was very engaged in it. So I think it's, if you look at all these things, tools and activities, you have to teach your kids how to use them. Because if you, if you protect them until they go to college, then all of a sudden they're going to be exposed. And then it's just like, they have no immune system to deal with all of this garbage. So I think it's a lot about how do you expose them and help them understand it or give them exposure into those things. Um, otherwise you're going to end up with kids who are just going to be week going into college or when they finally do leave the house yeah that, that's an interesting thing that i've also noticed especially it's noticeable in the u.s with alcohol right that kids typically don't drink until they're 21 and then they essentially become alcoholics in college and a lot of them never get out of it well my dad poured me my first glass of wine when i was in the fifth grade and i never became an alcoholic right i would occasionally even experiment with alcohol when i was in the seventh eighth grade we would sneak stuff into our school trips Right. But by the time I was 21, alcohol was just this thing that, okay, it's good in moderation. If you drink too much, it gives you headaches. Why would you do too much? It makes no sense. Right. So some exposure therapy is good, I guess. But, but where did you grow up? Israel. Israel. Yeah. So if you look at my father-in-law grew up in Austria, you know, they would put the binky of a baby in beer and then give it to him, you know? So I think it's, it's a lot about the exposure when they're young. I also think the big problem we have in the U.S. with most people, especially men, is that's the last thing you can do in the U.S., right? You can drink alcohol, and then that's how you show you're a man. Like, look at me. I'm a man. So it's this weird, like, coming-of-age ceremony kind of thing, only in a horrible way, yeah. right? Because then they're drinking, like, look how manly I am. Now I'm going to become an alcoholic, to your point. There's not a lot of rituals that we have, you know, in like in uh, – different cultures where you're either doing a bar mitzvah or a hasia or a, what has it been? Quinceanera, right? You have all these different rituals there, or you're moving the, the drinking age lower so that the last thing you do is not drinking. So I think it's a little bit of a, we're trying to, what there's two versions as I see it of, of how people parent. There's the one, like it's a dangerous world out there. I need to protect my children from it. And then there's, it's a dangerous world. I need to prepare my kids for it. And so that's where I'm much more in the, you need to prepare your kids for the world, not protect them. 
And so it's much more, okay, if I don't understand social media, then I can't teach my kids about it. If I don't understand alcohol, I can't teach my kids about it or premarital sex and all these other things that you want to have, you know, avoided and minimized the, the dangers of. All right. So we covered a lot of ground. What do you think we should have covered but didn't? Do you have any final topic that you want to bring up or final words of wisdom that you want to share with my audience? Let's think. I mean, the biggest one for me is if you, is it really having people expand their version of investing? If you're only investing for financial resources, I think you make very poor decisions if you're a man or a woman. And you don't recognize the social and human resources, you're neglecting massive things that could actually make you richer, both financially, but in these other ways too. So I really think it's important for people to look at it and say, like, how am I investing for my social connections? How am I investing for my human connection, for my human resources, in my in my health, in my abilities? Because if you're only focused on that one financial, I've just seen so many wealthy people who end up without those they have plenty of money but they end up without the social resources and frankly at the end of your life what do you have like i wish i had a hundred thousand dollars more money and i had a crappier relationship with my kids no one will ever say that but they'll always say i would give up millions of dollars to have my family back and so that's where i think we need to expand what we're investing in and i've noticed that in myself as well like where am i investing in the social connections in the community so many people complain like, well, I don't feel like we have a community. I feel lonely. Well, yeah. What are you doing in your community that would make other people feel connected and make you feel connected? And that's where I think with people, a lot of people have said, well, religion is bad. So they're stepping away from religion. Okay. It's a, it's a social group with people of similar value systems, which means you can connect really well there and pe they're disposed to help each other. Well, if you get rid of that, what do you have? Like, you're just lonely. Are you just about, well, I need to go be a consumer for the federal government so they can collect taxes on? Like, where's your long-term planning in there of understanding that social relationships are super important, financial is super important, but also the human and your health is super, super important. All right. And on that practical and hopeful note, thank you so much for coming here. This was... Yeah. A bit different from the topics we typically cover on the show, but it's super interesting to me personally, and therefore I hope it will be super interesting to most listeners. This has been an unusual episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussions on news, media, and the future of the information ecosystem.